Welcome to another episode of New Books and Poetry. I'm your host, John Ebersole, and I'm delighted to be joined by poet Angie Malenko, whose most recent book of verse is titled Marvelous Things Overheard, Ferrer Strauss Giroux, 2013. Her most recent work invites us to the Med, which is the title of one of her poems, and is short not only for the Mediterranean, but in our more modern context, short for medicine, which her poetry is for that reader needing to admit they are sick with not indifference to human history, but with the guilt they feel in their bones for not pursuing it. But Malenko's poetry does not set out to shame the reader, but a generous poetry that waits patiently for that reader's arrival. Ultimately, Malenko's work is about time, deep time and human time, that yields the enchantment of language, the enchantment of beauty and form, and finally the enchantment of wisdom, which we seek to answer the question, how shall I live? Malenko's poetry is where image and sound deliver the difficult pleasures, which are the ones worth having. Angie Malenko, welcome to New Books and Poetry. Thank you for having me. Thanks you're for that very, nice introduction. Oh, you're quite welcome. Uh, before we get started, I have some really kind of ridiculous two questions to ask you. Uh, the, <laughs> the, the author photograph on your new book has you in a leather jacket, and I've always been jealous of those who can pull that off, which I think you do, but I was wondering, is that your leather jacket or was that uh, kind of something the photographer uh, came up with? No, no, that's my leather jacket. All right. I, was just, I was just curious. <laughs> it's kind of, I was, Actually, I, oh, go ahead. I don't wear it that often. <laughs> I'm getting too old for that leather jacket. So. <laughs> well, you pull it off. You pull it off quite nicely. And right. and recently, I uh, you know, in preparation for our chat today, you know, I and it was just today I went to the uh, you know just a couple audio interviews, uh, one in particular that you did, and that. I'm so taken with your reading voice that it is perhaps one of the most just beautiful reading voices I've heard in so long. And I was wondering if you've had any sort of vocal training whatsoever, um, or is this just something that organically is just kind of a, a talent you have organically? Wow. I, I have never actually been told that. I um no, I have no vocal training. I can't sing for beans, <laughs> <laughs> which has always been a huge regret in my life. But actually, you know, I, I try not to listen to myself as much as possible. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody told me I really should listen to myself because that's how you get better. But I, I get terror of listening to myself. <laughs> I, I totally kind of uh, agree because, like, with the, even my interviews, like in the beginning, I was very like I listened to them meticulously. But after like a while, I just I, I'm like I don't even go near them hardly anymore. It's weird. But I was just wondering because uh, I think just when I think well, I think the sound of your poetry lends to it, you know, kind of a scaffolding in which your voice can play upon. But um, but that it's just it's never too fast, never too slow, and that the pacing of it and and just the sound of it, it really I think it. In many, I think what it does is just matches. Um, it matches well with your poetry. It, like I think your voice is particularly, particularly designed to read your poetry, and and that's just an incredible thing for me. Um, before we get started and kind of diving into marvelous things overheard, um, I couldn't help because I'm in the Philly area. I noticed lately the bios I read for you is very adamant about where you were born, and it says Philadelphia. So I was wondering, what? Uh, how long did you uh, live here? Were you just kind of born here and whisked off quickly, or what was your time in Pennsylvania like? Oh, it, it was you know my formative experience. I lived there until I went to college. Um, oh wow! In, in Annapolis, yeah, and then I came home for summers. Um, or most of the summers, and that, and then I moved to Boston after graduation, and I have not been back except to visit. So uh, I actually have a strong um, nostalgia for the uh, the landscape, the uh, topography, the the trees. Um, it's just a beautiful, beautiful area, and. 
I actually, you know, my early life was in the city. Um, my parents lived in the city. My grandparents always lived in the Northeast. So yeah. until I was 40, you know, I was going to visit my grandmother in Northeast Philadelphia. So mm-hmm. not that long ago. So. Yeah, that's yeah. incredible. Yeah, I live right in... I live right kind of outside. I don't know if you've ever, uh, you probably have. I don't know. Uh, uh, the Flower Town area. It's kind of near, uh, Chestnut Hill. Um, so I've lived here for a couple of years and it's a great, it's an interesting, uh, city. Um, but yeah, you haven't been back yet. It has like a kind of a, it's a weird mix of like an agrarian slash urban vibe to it. So you were here till, uh, till you moved away to college. Is that right? Yes. Yes. And that was in Annapolis? Uh, yeah. I went to college at St. John's College, the Great Books Program. Mm-hmm. And um, I studied, uh, you know, apropos for this book, I, I studied ancient Greek for two years. Right. Um, it was a, you know, philosophy, Great Books-based program, so it was heavy on philosophy, not right. as heavy on poetry. Hmm. And did you... Uh, I, it's my understanding you went. You eventually ended up at Brown. Is that right? Mm-hmm. I took a few years off. I wasn't sure I wanted to be in a program, but uh, I eventually realized that it wasn't so rewarding to just have odd jobs um, and try to write in the evenings. Right. So eventually, I went to Brown. And did you follow kind of that traditional or what seems traditional now trajectory for poets? What did you? Do their MFA program, or was it another kind of situation? No, I did the MFA program. Um, it, there's there's some confusion uh, about you know what MFA programs are for, and there's confusion about you know whether real poets go to MFA programs. I wanted to be a poet since I was 16. I fell mm. in love with poetry as a teenager, and pretty much was an autodidact in it for a long for you know 10 years before I went to grad school, but grad school is particularly uh, good for just being able to, you know, get a stipend and focus on poetry. Um, I I was able to teach it for a year, Um, so those were valuable things, and, but, you know, it's, I already probably came too formed to it to really get much out of it as an educational experience. Right, and you mentioned that you started kind of uh, poetry sort of found you when you were like 16 years old. What can you what can you say about that? Like, what was how that generally unfold? It's hard to say. I think that you know, adolescence is uh, you know really an emotional, obviously hormonal mm-hmm. time, and so something about the uh, you know the intersection of you know very intense language. Uh, and the intensest time of your life is they're probably made for each other in a certain way. <laughs> um, I had written, uh, you know, for a long time. I wanted to be a writer in a general sense. Right. Since I was probably seven. Um, but then poetry, you know, much to my parents' chagrin and against all practical judgment, um, poetry sort of overtook any other interest. Yeah, I was going to ask you about your family's reaction for uh, taking that course, I think. And you said, like, practical, I think. You know, like, we live in a in a culture obsessed with utility and, like, saying you're going to be a poet. I mean, I literally will tell people, like, that's where I ended up, and they just shake their head, like, baffled. Um, did your family, uh, were they really resistant to it or just kind of like, huh? Uh, what was their reaction to your kind of trajectory towards literature and poetry? Uh some of it was was just bafflement, uh, but my father was particularly uh, upset or irritated because, you know, they were immigrants, and there's a typical immigrant, uh, you know, uh, desire for their children to make it, to make money, to be settled, to be secure, and I was the oldest, and, um, you know, I... You know, I spent, I spent a lot of their money on college tuition, so they, I think they thought, you know, I should be, you know, um, successful in a different way. And yeah. they, they're not, you know, they weren't aware of the sort of um, the class, sort of the class, uh, how should I put this, that there's, um, you know, cultural capital in being a poet. They just can't, they never grasped that aspect of it, that 
you know, and they never saw me as, you know, uh, going to, uh, you know, possibly being sucked into the uh, professorship, you know, that I have now. And now they're, you know, they're very proud that I'm a professor. I'm yeah. not sure what's how they feel about my being a poet. <laughs> but, uh, so they, you know, they sort of didn't understand that kind of sideways entry into uh, privilege, you know, right. through his cultural. I mean, not that I understood it. I just loved poetry. But, you know, with the cynical eye of age, I see how that works. Yeah, it is kind of like a mysterious path towards uh, kind of, yeah, sort of a success. Let me ask you, you mentioned that you were the oldest. How many siblings do you have? I have three younger siblings, and they're all still in the area. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's great. And uh, was there any particular – I was talking to Mary Rufel about birth order. Was there any – last time I talked, uh did an interview with her, and was there any particular pressure or any, any direction that you were – I don't know. What was it like being the oldest? Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> the oldest is just, it's great because you have a sense of your specialness. Yeah. Um, and I see that replicated with my kids, too. But, you know, you my parents were very harsh on me. Like I said, they're immigrants. They're from Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. They're they're very uh, – they have no filters. Right. And so I, the pressure was on me to – you know, not only do well, but to be very good, to be obedient, to be very helpful. Um, my siblings, you know, at least one or two of them have admitted that I was sort of a mother figure for a long time. Oh, yeah. When, when they were young. So, you know, you grow up too fast probably when you're the oldest. Yeah. What is the age difference between yourself and your youngest sibling? Oh, only eight years. Eight years. My mom talked about <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, but that constitutes, like, the sibling-mother dynamic for sure. Uh, and did you ever, you know, I, I always wonder, like, uh, poets who come from kind of that non-literary maybe family, do you ever find it frustrating that, or do, are they ever, uh, are they ever kind of, like, barricaded from understanding the pleasures that you derive from poetry, that it's so foreign to them that they don't, you can't speak to them about it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, they they haven't even uh, acknowledged my new book. They just don't know how to acknowledge it. Right. Yeah. Do you find that frustrating at all? That or is that something that yeah. one comes to terms with in a way? <laughs> it's it's a minor minor you know wrinkle <laughs> in life. <laughs> yeah. You're not like you didn't stop speaking to them because of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah. As far as they're concerned, they just want me to be happy. Like it doesn't matter what I what I really did. As long as I'm secure and I'm happy, they're happy. Yeah, <laughs> I totally get it. <laughs> um, let me ask you: When you finished up, um, I kind of purposely don't know a lot about your biography. I didn't want to know a lot because I wanted to ask genuine questions to you. After Brown, what was the uh, the time period between finishing the MFA and and the publication of your first book. And what was that experience like, uh, finally getting that first book published? Well, I have to admit, it's kind of fell into my lap. So I was, um, you know, I was very uh, lucky that way. Um, I already had the book contract when I was at Brown. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, it came, the book came out very quickly, like a year maybe after I or less than a year after I graduated, and I was overseas. Uh, I, I was in Morocco at the time, so I kind of missed my own first book. Oh, wow. I wasn't there. I literally was in <laughs> incommunicado in this crazy town in the mountains, uh, in the Midwest Mountains. So um, I didn't even really get to have a um, – I don't even think I had a book party or anything like right. that. It was – yeah, and so and by the time I came back, it was old news. <laughs> no kidding, that was so funny. I, that is yeah. really strange, actually. It's like you missed the birth of your own child. <laughs> yeah, no, I was so excited. I was very happy, you know, to have the book. So excited and so excited when I got a star review and Publishers Weekly. It was just so everything was great. But you know, I was living life. I was. You know, my husband dragged me to Morocco where he had a teaching job. And so I, you know, I had always wanted to go to Morocco. And so, you know, there was no question that I would do that. And I, I'd moved to New York. Then his job offer came less than a year 
like mm-hmm. six months after we moved to New York. So I basically left New York the same year I finally went to live there. And I, it was just a huge mess. Like, it's just, I can't even imagine it now. Um, although the risks you're willing to take in your 20s, you know. But, so I was very busy at the time. It does sound like you're very busy. Um, where did you uh, meet your husband? Uh, in college. And, uh, wow, so, and he got this gig in Morocco, uh, and you were, was that just like a no-brainer for you? Like, let's do this? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, tell me about, because you're kind of notorious for, like, your traveling, and I'm wondering, like, so how long were you in Morocco? I was there almost a year, almost a year. And then what'd you do after that year? Went back to New York. Um, at the time, I was in love with New York, and I wanted to be there. Um, so, I don't know, Morocco, the, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what, oh, yeah, I remember what happened. My husband had gotten into Columbia Law School, so, and it was kind of a lark, because he already had a PhD in philosophy that he was teaching in Morocco. Oh, wow. But the job, yeah, and the job market was so bad in philosophy that he decided to try law school. Wow, that is really incredible. Yeah, so he's been as busy as me. (laughs) (laughs) And so you're in Morocco while he's teaching. Your first book comes out. You head back to New York, and he does – he goes into uh, Columbia's law school. And what are you up to at that moment? Uh, It was – I was working to support us, and I was working down on Wall Street as a technical writer. Oh, wow. Not exciting at all. I even had, like, I had people at parties just walk away from me when I said I was a technical writer as opposed to being a poet, of course. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> it was terrible. It was boring. It was just, you know, just a, a job to pay the rent. Yeah. And then, uh, so we're that is a technical writer on Wall Street. Jeez. <laughs> that was incredible. Um where were you in your writing then? Um, how was the formulation of your second book coming about? Uh, it was hard. It was it was, a, it was harder than the first book. It was um, being in New York had a very insular effect on me, probably, and I was you know reading a lot of New York School, which I always had, but then there I was right in New York, mm-hmm. reading New York School and going to readings at the St. Mark's Poetry Project. And um, and so I feel like I was simply in a coterie there mm. and um, and trying to keep my head down and work. And it was very hard to do because New York does not lend itself to working. It lends itself to socializing. Or if your work involves socializing, that, you know, it marries the two things that suck up all your time. But poetry mm-hmm. is poetry is so solitary, uh, you really need more downtime. You need more time to brood and to process, and New York doesn't get that. Yeah, you're, that is so true. And uh, so when did you end up, was this, did you end up traveling back to the Mediterranean, like, long after your time in New York? What, did your uh, husband finish up law school, and that was kind of a, a narrative marker to, like, did the, you know, did a new chapter start then? Uh, the narrative marker, it was the narrative marker for having kids. Mm. <laughs> and so we ended up moving to uh, Croton on Hudson, which is a train ride from Manhattan. Okay. And um, and I was at home uh, with the two little kids while he went to work, and that's when I started really getting doing good work and writing um, essays and reviews and and uh, I'm feeling like I was getting closer to my goal, my my tr- my true poetry. Yeah, that's interesting because like the the stereotype kind of is like when the kids come along, like uh, the poet or the writer's production tanks, but yours seems to have uh, to kind of increase, like it's stabilized in a way for you to like kind of kind of dig in. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely right. Hmm, that's really interesting because now that I'm getting a timeline together, you kind of like were highly productive in the last like seven to ten years, really. Uh, right, right. I had prepared myself. I mean, I'd done a lot of work to prepare myself, but there, that was, you know, it was really just a preparation for, you know, after 
after after having lived, you know, having lived a life. And I found New York extremely sterile in terms of living life. Oh, wow, that is brilliant. And what brought you guys over uh, to the Mediterranean? Well, uh, the, to be frank, the um, global financial meltdown. Um, my husband lost his job, and he decided to go back into academia, this time teaching law. And he was able to get a job really quickly after losing his uh, law firm job in, Mor- in uh, not Morocco, um, in Beirut at the American University of Beirut. Wow. So, exactly. He's still there, actually. Oh, no kidding. That's amazing. And when that decision was made, um, so you're like kind of transplanting the whole family, and it also sounded like you kind of got into a nice kind of creative space and routine. Was it really like disruptive to move, or was, or do you do this sort of like seamlessly? You're not necessarily a creature of habit. Um, it was the most difficult decision I'd ever made. Okay. Um, and it, everything was very, very scary and um, in upheaval until we got there. And then it was like a dream. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Um, you know, it was. Um, it's it's not a stable place. It's not a place where ordinarily you'd want to bring your two young children. Right. It's it's a very hard place to have children. Uh, but um, in but as a sort of renewal, uh, it was it, it did the trick. And you know, you're surrounded by so much history and so much culture and. Uh, it's mind blowing. It's just so different from the U.S. And people are different. People. There's there's a greater love of life. There's you know uh, there's a, there's nightlife. There's dancing. There's music. There's um, passion. I mean, it's just a completely different uh, mindset. I know. I'm so fascinated by that. It seems like I don't know if like we're all uptight and embarrassed in America or something, but yeah. just, but just kind of like the general, you know, the the vibrancy that comes with leisure. I think here leisure is seen, a, you know, is associated with laziness or somehow like where leisure is really often a vibrant celebration of your own humanity that other cultures seem completely to understand. Um, when it's you not got just it. leisure, it's sociality. You know, like yeah. people just people spend time with people. Yeah. Doing fun things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Darn it, they value doing fun things with other people better than us. That's so funny. Um, how did your, uh, you know, how, it, it's another stereotype is like, oh, uprooting kids is dramatic for the child, but children are so resilient. That I guess it just depends on the disposition of the children. Did they, uh, how they handle the move? Well, my my older child could handle anything. Um, uh-huh. He's he's just great, and he was in first grade at the American school there. Mm-hmm. And he had a great year, and he had friends, and he had free. He had a freedom that he doesn't have in a, in the U.S. Yeah. Even if he lived in a suburb, I and mean, he had freedom to roam as a six year old in a way we did, we don't hear. But um, my three year old uh, did have a hard time. Yeah. He was just acquiring language, and then we came to this place where. There were three languages spoken uh, oh, all the wow. time. Sometimes, you know, three languages all at once. And um, so it, it did have an impact on him. And uh, it was crazy because we lived in this, we lived in a, on the, what was it, the sixth floor, I think, of a of an apartment building that was like all play glass. So we had these beautiful wow. views of, we had the med, we had downtown Beirut, and we had the campus. But and now I have this three year old who will like who will charge through glass, you know, and oh, right off the balcony and I'm keeping an eye on him. So it's a bit a bit crazy. We always worried about him. That is crazy. It must have been so strange just to sit back too and just see your children in such a foreign place. You're like Oh my gosh, like I'm operating a family life here. It must have been so weird. And it must have been odd to kind of did the did you have the sense of coming full circle to your um to kind of the undergraduate years of studying the classics where you're like, Oh my gosh, I'm like, it's, it's coming back around. Oh, absolutely. Um, there's right on campus, there's a museum, an archeological museum. And there were, you know, just 
there's all kinds of writing. I mean, writing originated in Phoenicia. Right. And so the it was very exciting to look at these. Um, I mean, they have a sarcophagus, which was the very first or the oldest inscription that they have in the Phoenician alphabet. And, um, you know, the Phoenician alphabet became the Greek alphabet and hence our alphabet. Um, so that was really going back to the origins of the alphabet of writing. And just, <laughs> you know, that, that was mind-blowing. Yeah, that uh, I know. It reminds it's just a... Uh... I love when, and typically I would think of like kind of natural landscapes doing this, but even kind of that kind of human history, I love it when things like that just kind of put you in your place. Um, it reminds me of just like landscape paintings uh, in early America with like the figure was always situated like real tiny among like canyons and trees. And in a way, it reminds me that you must have felt in a way like kind of this deep reverence for being physically where you were at, reconnecting with what you studied. And I wanted to ask you, with this book and the way you draw on that kind of classical history, um, you know, it seems like some poets are drawn to more kind of the religious history, Christianity, Islam, or, or what have you. And But you kind of went further back, and I know you have you know, kind of <clears throat> that your poems are very much sensitive to the, the passage of time and what it means for all of us. Um, when did you get drawn, like, as an undergraduate to to kind of going all the way back like that, as opposed to maybe uh, certain more contemporary, like, kind of religious history influencing your work, or are they both kind of interplaying with one another? Well, I had the great good fortune of being raised Catholic, Mm -hmm. Um, which means that I was already aware from a very early age of our narrative myths and stories and had had a an education in this other dimension. Not only the spiritual dimension, but just the dimension of the past and you know, possibly the future. You know. One of the first theological thoughts for me, one of the first existential thoughts I ever had was thanks to a Catholic catechism, which stipulated that God had no beginning and no end. And I, I realized I could imagine no end better than I could imagine no beginning. Wow. Um, yeah. You know, and I was about seven. <laughs> so, so it was always sad. And so I always feel like it's, it's sad when poets haven't grown up with that sense. But um, sometimes I think that the whole problem with contemporary poetry is that there's just no... No, yeah, people are being raised without any religious uh, culture, cultural background. I know, I find that. I always just find that amazing, too, that there's such a knee-jerk reaction to throw religion under the bus, but, you know, it's not all about, you know, uh, kind of propositions and whether they're true or not. You know, that there's, like, a deep cultural, like, history treasure trove there. Uh, And that theology in many ways is trying to tackle some of the uh, the same issues as, you know, philosophy and everything else, but that you're right, that you're instantly kind of, uh, kind of, and you said like when you're seven, there is something about being a child, being introduced to those ideas that is so kind of freaky that you get a sense of the bigness and the weirdness of your life. Um, (laughs) I always remember like, laying in bed sometimes and thinking like as a child and just being weirded out at the idea that I could not exist or something. <laughs> or like, right. It was just right. weird. And, and in adulthood, I have a harder time kind of recreating that, that mesmerizing feeling because as a child, there was some like physicality to it. It was weird. Um, you know, I want to kind of start moving into uh marvelous, uh, things overheard. I want to ask you though, I think in many ways, I think you might have said or, or written this elsewhere. And I do want to ask you, I have to remind myself about your experience writing prose. Um, but with this book, uh, that I might have seen you argue that in many ways, in your own mind, it's more accessible in many ways in your previous work. Can you, can you speak to this idea of accessibility in this book? Uh, I, I, it's hard to, to see what other people see in your own work, but for me, it felt like I was embracing more uh, of the prose 
of Poe's virtues uh, in his poems. Um, at the same time that I was uh, actually, you know, being very composed and uh, working with the verse line, in some cases with verse here. But uh, I think that for too long I was, you know, more confident of what the fragments could accomplish. And I'm less confident now about what, what the fragment can accomplish, at least for my purposes. Hmm. And the prose kind of line, you know, those kind of more sprawling lines, I mean, that, it, one, it seems to simultaneously uh, take a lot of courage to do that because, to, for me anyway, the longer the line, it just seems the more exposed and vulnerable you become. Um did you have a sense of that at all? Um, or, do you mean or, something like Bliss Street? Do you mean, I mean, specifically, do you mean in something like Bliss Street? Yeah, exactly. Or? Just kind of like this, and not chattiness, but just, a, you know, just kind of a sprawling of language, because I've read other poems by you that are kind of just like physically generous on the page, you know, mm-hmm. as opposed to something more stanzic. Uh, I don't know. But you did say you kind of embrace more of a prose sense. I guess I'm asking, like, what do you mean by that? Uh, I I think that you know I I I did feel very nervous about some of the more sprawling poems, um, mm-hmm. and I felt like at the same time um, I felt that there was a difference in um, the, in reading the poems out loud to audiences that were more pronounced in favor of poems that sprawled out like that. It was really strange. Like oh wow you know, yeah the, the um. I mean, I'm a person who believes in poetry on the page. I think the poem on the page is the radical thing. Um, right. But, but I think that when, you know, because so much of our job these days is is reading out loud, reading to people, reaching people that way, I felt like I needed to be able to do both things. Um, I needed to be able to write, you know, lapidary poetry, and I needed to be able to write poetry that um, that really communicated with people uh, from the in the in the reading in the room, right? Um, and you know, I don't know if the twain shall meet. I really don't. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Let me uh, let me back up for a second and ask you about uh, your your experience writing as prose. Um, do you find that you will be that you'll have moments of getting more infuriated at your prose while you're writing it than your own poetry, or? Uh, I was talking to other people about this and that they're much more compelled to walk away frustrated during the writing of prose and their poetry. What's been your experience? Uh, no, I, I love writing prose. I, I love it. I mean, I don't do it unless I'm, I'm forced to, actually. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, um, I only respond to assignments. I never like pitch assignments or write something and then try to sell. Almost never. I mean, maybe once or twice. But uh, I really I'm very interested in the poem, in the particular problems of the poem, um, and increasingly the problems of verse and and stanzas. Um, But so you know, it doesn't really. It's not a source of frustration. Writing is not a source of frustration. Um, It's the best. It's you know when I it's where I feel my best. Um, It's when my mind is the most fully engaged. It's when I feel I've done something worth doing in the world. Right. Um, so so no, I don't really feel frustration. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Um, why don't we go ahead and open up the book and start taking um, taking a look at some of these poems and have you read a few. Um, I was wondering uh, if we could start out with uh, the very first poem, The Grind. And let me just ask you before you read that, um, one uh, – some poets are very cautious of the ordering of their poems in the book where the book is like mm-hmm. concept or object or other poets I've talked to are like, I write my poems out without really the idea of a, a book. And then I basically just put them all together and make a book. And they're not really too, you know, or the editor will just kind of like, yeah, this one should go first. Okay. What was your, what's behind putting this poem as just kind of like the first kind of introduction to the reader. Is there anything behind it? Uh, I I just loved this poem. I was just so happy to have written this um, this 
very, uh, you know, it's very rhymy. It's very song-like. Um, I usually try, I think, to put something very song-like right at the beginning of, of my books. Oh, that's really interesting. And, uh, well, let's go ahead and hear it. Okay. Well, you realize you set me up with that um, pay into my reading voice, and I'm terribly self-conscious. Oh, my gosh. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> Well, and you know, I have to well, replicate these perfect audios. Well, you know. I will say this. You are on a cell phone, right? Mm-hmm. So I will just let everyone know right now that that is already going to compromise, you know, uh, uh, your voice in some way. So don't feel any pressure at all. I'm so, I didn't even – I should have told you that at the end. I'm sorry. <laughs> all right. I'll give it my best shot. <laughs> Here's the grind. All right. Thanks. The grind. <laughs> Three chabatini for breakfast, where demand for persnickety bread is small, hence its expense, hence my steadfast recalculation of my overhead, which soars, and as you might expect, the chabatini stand in for my fantasy of myself in a sea-limbed prospect on a terrace with a lemon tree, not assessed a fee for rent sent a day late, not finds accrued for a lost library book. Better never lose track of the date. Oversleep and you're on the hook. It's the margin for error shrinking. It's life ground down to recurrence. It's fewer books read for the thinking. The hospital didn't rebuild the insurance. The school misplaced the kids' paperwork. Here's our sweet pup, a rescue, which we nonetheless paid for. And look, he gets more grooming than I do. When I turn my hand mill, I think of the dowager who ground gems on ham for her guests, the queen who ground out two cups of flour on the pregnant abdomen of her husband's mistress. I think of a great rock-eating bird grinding out a sandy beach, the foam said to be particulate matter of minute crustaceans, each brilliantly spooning up Aphrodite to Greek porticos and our potatoes and plain living, which might be shaken by infinitesimal tattoos. That was beautiful. Thank you so much. And your voice sounded amazing. Um, This poem is just so uh, incredible to me. And the idea of the grind is like a, origami that keeps on unfolding in many ways uh you know if the grind i just i was kind of taken with the title and thinking about it that grinding like will atomize things or grind things down to either like kind of a more agreeable consumption or or later revised into some like greater totality and then there's just kind of the grind of labor and all these kind of iterations of grind and then the poem seems to take a rather dark turn as you as you yourself turn the hand mill um which and then i mean that is just a gorgeous stanza you know the queen who ground out two cups of flour on the pregnant abdomen of her husband's mistress i was just like oh my god (laughs) this is killing me uh what do you want to say about this poem well uh those anecdotes can be found in uh, Colin Dubron's book, uh, Travels to Cyprus, or Jer- Journey to Cyprus, is it? Um, it's in my acknowledgments. Um, um, it's in there somewhere. What is it's it really just sinister, but also speaks to magic almost. Um, well, it's journey into Cyprus, and um, in this in this book, and in and in all of the books really that I was reading about the Mediterranean at the time, there's there's much discussion about the geology of the Mediterranean, and it, it's a rocky place, it's a stony place, and of course, all these ruins that are excavated are, you know, writing on tablets, writing on stone sarcophagi, you know, graven images, so uh, you know, mosaics. So everything there's so much about stone. Right. You know, and, 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 you know, the salt of the Mediterranean, Aphrodite coming from the sea, foam. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the foam is actually, I had read, composed of these tiny little crustaceans. Um, oh, so, it, yeah, so the idea, I mean, the whole region is, you know, you just think of time grinding things down. So Right. And really. 
Oh, I was just going to say that the act of grinding is such a, a distinct process as well. And that, and what's indicative of, of process is design of some sort. And that the poem is in these kind of like nice rhymes, um, speaks to that design and that ultimately design is kind of an act of seeking. And that's what I always get a sense from your poems that they're seeking. And this poem, the grinding seems like a, in a echo of, of seeking in a way. It's really beautiful. Thank you. You're welcome. I also should say, uh, in retrospect, I thought it must have also come out of the first poem in, um, in Ann Winters's book uh, called The Mill Race. Um, it's in her book, uh, what is that called? Capital, something with capital in it. <laughs> Do you know this book? I don't. Ann Winters. Um, God, why is my, I cannot remember anything. Um her last book, it was 2005-2006, um, and the, it's a, her her poem, The Mill Race, huh. ends with ends with all these workers in Manhattan as you know Manhattan as a kind of mill grinding right. people down. Um, so I think there must have been something of that in in my mind when I was thinking about grinding the grind. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Um, the the displaced of capital. That's what it is. The displaced of capital. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the grind is like a form of uh, kind of gruesome labor almost. Um, <clears throat> the next poem I wanted you to read was Alexander's Naming of the Wind, and ironically, I was so bummed in a way because, not by the poem, but my choice of it in a way because I listened, I just listened to a, the interview on KCRW, and I couldn't believe he had like picked that poem. I was like, you know, it's so hard. I was like, what are you doing? And then I was like, well, I. I thought, well, maybe there's something to that, that the the poem, uh, you know, displays your sonic landscape so amazingly. Um, so uh, despite probably – so, No, actually, I've been dying to hear you read it, so okay. I'm going to ask you to. And I, and I want to discuss it as well. So um, if you have anything to say about it uh, before you read it, that's fine, or you can just start reading it. Well, there's a lot going on in it, and I think I missed saying in the interview, in the other interview, that mm-hmm. um, that Ezra Pound's uh, Ezra Pound's cantos uh, came into this too. Um, the line, and I should have put this in my acknowledgments, and I simply forgot that the the thing about the king, um, um, no wind is the king. That's out of the cantos. Oh wow! Uh, no wind is the king. So that's that's Ezra Pound. Um, I don't know if it's translations, but um, it's he, interesting how these things just shuttle in and out of one's poems. You know that the well, oh god, like you know, the cantos are um, you know they just sort of embed themselves in you. If you're not careful, you'll end up quoting them. You know? <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's the cantos, and there is Aristotle. Aristotle was, of course, Alexander's teacher. Um, so Aristotle has this possibly um, apocryphal treatise and uh, the naming the situation and naming of the winds and the names and just the idea of naming winds, of course, is is a, an exciting one. And right. you know, the Mediterranean has named different named winds still, Sirocco, the Mistral. Um, I know it's so incredible because we only know the wind. Um, it's interesting because if we the act of naming something, right, is to kind of, you know, uh, and just kind of like hold it still with language and then go from there. And that the only evidence of wind is either feeling it or seeing it move something else. So the idea of naming is seems not dubious, but interesting. Yeah. Well, at the same time, different people have had different names for the same thing. So, you know, Aristotle saying, well, it's here they call it the Taurus, but there they call it the something else. Right. <laughs> so you're always kind of like looking for the for equivalencies or, you know, not really sure where you are because you're not sure if that's the very same place, but we think it's the same place. And so it, it lends itself to a lot of, um, you know, uh, guessing and yeah. a lot of equivocation. Exactly. All right, whenever you're ready. Okay. Alexander's Naming of the Winds. 
And I do want to add that while I have looked up pronunciations of these things, I quickly forget them. So if I mispronounce these ancient words, <laughs> that's I, go with it. <laughs> I'm totally sympathetic to that. <laughs> if you'd seen lightning nets in clear water, midnight blue beyond the reefs, the pattern intact on nippled juglets, if you'd seen feral cats dozing on jagged steelies when the noon sun drugged us, you'd say, too, can't I have it? Or if I could describe it, I could have it, like an ancient contest. They say Apuliotes is called Potamius here in Phoenicia. Between the mountains of Libanus and Papyrus, it blows from a plain like a vast threshing floor. It might also be called Syriandus in the Gulf of Isis, which blows from the Syrian gates between the Rosian Mountains and the Taurus. In Tripoli, they call it Marcius. On the border of Syria, the southeast wind, the Eurus, is called Scopelius. But in Cyrene, it is known as Phoenicia. I can't have this. But they say these Phoenicians who sailed the pillars of Hercules with oil to trade came back with more silver than they could carry and were forced to refit their ship's wheel, keel, and anchors with silver, not to mention their tableware, cookware, and fixtures. And though they say the Phoenicians received their name from the Greek phoenix eye to stain with blood because they slew and murdered as they streamed over the sea, if you'd seen the murex pits, the very waves dispurpling the shore with the dye of the snail, you'd know what those kingdoms were stained with. I can have it. Describe it thus, and though no one can claim that this wind is the wind of the palace, we must hope for the Lucanotus, the white wind, to arrive from the south if the Potanius or Syriandus or Marcius or Phoenicius won't come to our aid. No wind is the king's. But if you'd seen, as I saw, at the fundus of the world, snakes desquamate their own simulacra, eggs shiver at a tamarine, a Eurydice essay toward the nest, for good measure, not to lose the contest, you would pray for a wind to come, the rough marine roof kicked up by the hoof of notice if necessary, its bad air notwithstanding, to bear you back to where the language boards augur into ears of matching description, though it caused great storms in the harbor at Posidonium. Oh, that was so good. You totally killed that. That was great. Thank um, you. It's amazing the sound, the, the, uh, just the prominence of the S sound throughout the poem. Until near the end, it seems that, like the, you know, the R sound starts to kind of encroach in on the wind to either, I don't know, to almost like a, a foreshadowing the conclusion of the poem and the wind in many ways. Um, it's funny that you said, it reminded me when you said that, in many ways, we're just like guessing the names of these winds. Uh, it reminded me of uh, this, something that uh, Thomas Hobbes said, that the the best uh, prophets are the best guessers. I don't know. Um, what? Uh, it's just a really, really incredible thing. And it, and it really kind of just opens up a quick conversation we can have about sound in your poetry and you know kind of like you must be in a way tired of hearing like you uh associated with all these amazing word choices and and geez you know you're going to alienate some readers and and despite the fact that uh google is so prominent in our life but what but what i wanted to kind of <laughs> which is just a whole yeah i mean that's just kind of fun in itself um but i do want to and it's not that your poetry is so ornately, you know, kind of uh, the, the words are so ornate that it's just a, a kind of a diamond wall that you can't penetrate. But because some like like kind of a common vernacular kind of like crops up in your poetry a lot. Um, but this idea that this idea of the plain spoken, though, you know, just kind of like no interest in, in kind of uh forgotten words that still just exist and are there for the taking. Um, this idea of the plain spoken, and I, I always wrestle with that because I feel like we plain speak every day. Shouldn't poetry sort of offer us a new engagement with with language and that somehow the, plain, the ethic of the plain spoken is some 
kind of leftover relic of kind of romanticism's insistence on authenticity. Um, oh, the vernacular, yeah. Yeah, you know, and I just feel like I kind of gravitate to kind of the poetry that you write because it it rattles me into a new a new engagement with language. You want to? Can you speak to that at all? Well, there's so much to say about that, really. Um, and sure, I am kind of annoyed at the uh, resistance to it because there isn't the same resistance to it in the work of, say, David Foster Wallace um, or any number of prose writers. And people read, uh, sensibly read those writers, um, you know, uh, that they have big audiences. So what is it about the use of um, a wide vocabulary in poetry that irks people where it doesn't irk it? for people in the fiction world. Um, so that's one question I yeah. have. Um, the question of the plain style, you know, it's, there's two ways to think about it. One is that it's, it's traditionally, you know, in many poetry cultures, non-Anglophile poetry cultures, it's the norm for poetry to be uh, elevated language. Right. Uh, if you talk to... Um, you know, uh, people versed in Arabic poetry, and I, I love uh, pre-Islamic Arabic poetry. Mm. You know, they will they will talk about the you know the um, the heightening of the language, the the sense that you uh, the sense that this is special language and it's rhyming and it's um, and it's baroque is uh, is essential to it being poetry. Right. Um, and. And these were boasting contests. Um, you know, those, those beautiful casitas, uh, they were, uh, they were composed and sung in order to beat out the competition, you know. So the idea that you go over the top or that you, you know, you're virtuosic or masterful, um, is built into the expectation for poetry. Now you get to English poetry and you have this sort of, uh, I don't know, I don't even think it's a very interesting, divide between the plain spoken and the, um, I don't know, the Baroque or the metaphysical. Mm-hmm. And so people, you know, you know, sort of posit uh, Ben Johnson as a model over John Donne, you know, or Shakespeare, or Milton over Shakespeare. And it's, right. that, it's really silly. Um, <laughs> so I, I don't know what to say about it other than it's a long running argument. Um, there's and- no... Co- Inclusive evidence that you know the pain style is is superior. <laughs> That's true. That would be, well, yeah, that, that would just be an impossible argument in my mind. <laughs> but I'm just kidding. Uh, but I think it's a disposition of the poet as well. It's just uh, maybe perhaps it has nothing to do with some sort of like kind of ethical decision about the work, and that that certain poets just have a disposition. Towards it, but then, like you say, in pre-Islamic Arabic poetry, it's more of like kind of a cultural like norm that this is part of the job of the poet to. That's why it's poetry and not something else. So, exactly. uh, but yeah. I'm sure it's the argument. Oh, go ahead. What? It's a you know it's ceremonial language in most cases. Poetry yeah, precisely. Out of a religious or ceremonial. Um, you know, institution like Pindar. Pindar is another person who is considered. You know, t- too ornate, too baroque, even translate for a long time. Right, and uh, it's funny because a lot of, I don't know, a lot, but some contemporary poets I read seem to, the voices or the language seems deliberately sapped of of tone or any sort of, um, like you said, baroque or kind of like interesting word choice. Uh, I don't know. It is kind of like. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worry about it. I, I do worry about I think that, uh, you know, expectations have been lowered for poetry over the last 30 years, 30, 40 years. Really. Yeah, and I saw that, uh, I read in an interview, and I actually was able to, uh, speaking about technology on Twitter, tra- like, I just kind of threw it out there, but you used this term that you read in the Chicago Review as uh, certain posts being aggressively minor, and I had never... <laughs> heard that phrase before and I was just so uh, taken with it and actually the editor somehow tracked it down and and got it and took a picture of it and it was from like the 45th issue or something I don't know but uh, this idea of aggressively minor that somehow like I don't know I feel like I'm belaboring this too much let's move on Um, 
let's take a look at uh Angie, are you still there? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I just want to make sure. <laughs> uh no, fine. Okay, cool. Um let's take a look at Bliss Street. Um okay. and if I've I just what a remarkable, remarkable poem. Do you want to say anything about it before you read it? It's very self explanatory. Yeah. I'll go right ahead. It's called Bliss Street. And this is an actual street uh, running by the American University of Beirut. Okay. From this balcony, the sight lines are clear to the rooftop, volleyball court of my son's elementary school. From its mesh cage, the kids at PE class raise the right ruckus. I look over. Is he up there now? No, his is a different period. I'm squeezing some orange halves on a cheap plastic boat with a dome like a parliament and teeth at the spout to catch seeds and pulp, dragging a haul of juicing oranges all the way down campus in my bag, stitched with the word cypress. I recall the oranges were mostly on the trees in Cyprus. It was the potato we were about then, the famous Cypriot, grown in red dirt and baked in its jacket, fluffy as a buttered cloud. We would pass the fields of red dirt and then a schoolyard and wonder what it would be like to be a child raised on an island like this, squat between sun and sea, never an ice age, abounding with indigenous flowers evolving freely without extinction, but, oh yeah, massacres, barbed wire slicing the casilla in a crescent ghetto. My grandmother picked potatoes on a collective farm at the age of nine after her father died, but the funny story she told was of having shut herself inadvertently in the potato cellar while her mother was ill with pneumonia. The eldest child, she knew that if her mother died as well, it would be all on her shoulders, the infant, the other children. And already terrified to begin with, she began bawling. But, you know, someone let her out after a few hours. Her mother survived the pneumonia. She survived the potato farm. Then when she was 18 and working in a hospital kitchen, her supervisor opened the pantry and gestured toward the potatoes, pocketing some in her overcoat. She was terrified all over again. If she did help herself, their boss, a kind man, would find out. If she didn't help herself, her supervisor would know she knew. She didn't take the potatoes, and she didn't get fired. And decades later, she would return to the scene of demoralization, her version of the Stalin years. The volleyball court has gone silent. The PE teacher, whose name I don't remember, rests his arms against the ledge and overlooks the street, the campus, my building, in which I sit, stuck in a thought about potatoes. He stands there a minute or two in repose, then turns and walks away, leaving the scene unpopulated, as in some sketch or exercise by a painter removed from the north to a Mediterranean Arcadia full of ruins and cypresses. Oh, it would be an exaggeration to say it's full of ruins here. More like one of those mythological scenes with youths and gods in a crowded sky. Bliss Street overflowing with students, slowing traffic as they drift across the road. Scooters clustered outside the gate inscribed with the motto that life may be lived more abundantly. Perfect motto for a university. Perfect as the fig trees were perfect that grew all into one boxy wreath round the dry fountains, the kids on rented bicycles circled madly, that survived the Civil War by the looks of their thick trunks, ringed by apartment blocks and antenna raised into a looming cloud the color of putty. Putty, not putty. That was beautiful. Thank you so, so much for reading that. It's really just an incredible poem because you take us in so many different places um and it seems i mean if i just kind of look through this poem so many times but on the fourth line that no his you know speaking about your son no his is a different period it just evoked <laughs> that the sense of history that you are so sensitive to and then to go from there to I'm squeezing some orange halves on a cheap plastic boat with a dome like a parliament and teeth at the spout to catch the season pulp. Just you know, using imagery and and the and the image to indicate to the reader transformation 
that the orange in somewhat of a violent way is being transformed. And it reminds me of the grinding in the first poem that that it takes us to dragging a hall of juicing oranges all the way down campus in my bag stitched with the words the word cyber the way um you know you brilliant i think in so many of your poems you brilliantly like like a like a mouse cursor on a computer you guide the reader's eye where it needs to go and and that telescopes in and out usually of kind of scale and Mm -hmm. then that scale of imagery is usually communicating something tremendous to the reader and that it really and it's such like kind of an old idea the idea of imagery and I know there's always conversation between imagery, maybe not verses, but uh, imagery and physical imagery and the abstract that the scaffolding of imagery in here is just so remarkable in that um, imagery kind of recovers memory from kind of the decaying force of time and distance and that you're kind of like kind of like bringing back this internalized motion. Um it's really, <laughs> and then the red dirt and the red dirt, and then that, and really these. You turn your voice on a dime when you're like, but oh yeah, you know I didn't even know how you were gonna read that. You know I would read it, to, but oh yeah, the massacres. It was so like perfect, and yeah, and what about those massacres? Because the poem, and then it goes into this, this converse, you know, the story about your grandmother. And to end dramatically on her version of the Stalin years is just heartbreaking. It was just heartbreaking. And then, and then to take us back to that rooftop of the volleyball court, it's just a brilliant, a brilliant, your brilliant ability to, to guide the reader and to really like tell the reader, like, you're in good hands here. I, I'm taking care of this. And then the Aww. PE, yeah, and the PE teachers whose name I don't remember, you know, really kind of echoed the the poem about the wind for me and the incessant like instinct to name, to name, to name. And here, the name it totally escapes you. And what does that mean except somehow denuding that figure of some sort of importance? And yet he stands there a minute or two in repose. And I can only guess what as he's gazing out um, what what is going on there but then you bring up it almost becomes these kind of pastoral gestures you know and it's weird to have pastoral gestures which the bedrock of this kind of you know the idealization of something and yet we have the Stalin years and massacres happening in the same poem it's just a really a really accomplished poem and I'm so glad I got to hear you read it um, how long what was the composition of that poem like for you was it did it come quickly uh what was that like? I, my poems usually come quickly. At least the, the decent ones do. <laughs> it's yeah. Like, it's like it's fun if it's not coming quickly, I should just, you know, stop. Uh, yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, there was so much going on in my life. Um, it's the, the question is, where do you stop? You know, I could have probably gone on forever. Exactly, in a way, yeah. You know, with that and, um, so it's a good thing that, you know, I just have my own ADHD. I, don't, I just can't go on and on. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I did find out after after I wrote that poem, I read uh, Mahmoud Darwish's Memory for Forgetfulness, and I found out that 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 park that I'm talking about, where yes. the kids are riding their bicycles, yes. that was the scene of a huge building collapse. Um, I mean, a bomb, what they called a vacuum bomb that. Uh, uh, that was exploded by Israelis there in 1982, and it's flattened. You know, it's a, it's a, a very terrible scene in Darwish's book. And, right. And then, you know, that didn't get into the poem, but it's inevitably going to always be connected there with that now, yeah. now that I know that. So there's always contingencies with poems that you, you can't, you're not in charge of. You can only just sort of... You know, maybe there is something to that to prophecy or to guess it, educated guessing that goes on with poets as they get good at their craft. Yeah, I don't know. Is, I think that is, yeah, that's really amazing that you say that. And to have those children, uh, <clears throat> such a, a like a key word choice to have them madly or, you know, just the sense that that circular motion, you know, and and how rich that is metaphorically to think about our lives or time or history 
but the fact that they're children and now in light of the detail of that specific place you just told me it just deepens or enlarges the power of that image it's really incredible I mean, life is incredible. <laughs> I know. And, that, you know, that's what I get exactly from your poetry is is that if, you know, if the puzzlement of our existence isn't enough to freak you out in a wonderful, terrifying way and then to move you to want to articulate that bewilderment, um, I don't know what's going on, you know? Like, yeah, I know. <laughs> I just really, I don't know, I don't know where, how, you, how one can't be constantly beside themselves. Um I'm going to have uh, the last poem you read, um, which is um, Reason, Love, Control. Okay. This also speaks for itself, I think. Reason, Love, Control. An onerogenic agent, the silene, will give you vivid dreams, or so a butterfly larva, like the gray chi, which feeds on it, could tell you. I am a scientist with an eldritch proboscis scouring the Siberian permafrost for one lupine or campion germ in a squirrel's Pleistocene stash. A sea Adam, a sea Eve, cast out some time ago, once looked at their hands and feet in astonishment. Now fish, now mammal, now both, thinks the breaching dolphin. And in that instant, death's opacity fills ampules of shrimp for our table. The here and now crowns shelves of rocks, tablets, bones, and papyrus stamped with a hermetic style. It would take a more original organ to decode. As to its low-slung Eden, our dolphin returns with a lunge. Against your mother's viscera, you felt the tide fall toward the foreshore. Your eyes you inherited from the stigma of a photosynthetic chloroplast. Your nose is but the pointed anterior end of the first flagellate presenting polarity. Your mouth, the elaboration of the oral depression formed in response to the propulsion of the anterior flagellum. This inherited equipment suggests that nothing living, not even seaweed, deserves contempt so long as the output makes good the wastage. Love sets Love sets its crampons in decaying samara as a fiddlehead stakes its sylvan citation on shot over land. We're sitting in my sister's house. We could go to the aquarium, she says. Medusazo and nerve nets. Terophyllum altum. So laterally compressed that, like impending disaster, it disappears when regarded head on. Right under my nose, my father diagnosed. And that smoothing out of every wrinkle in his brain, a transfer of fretwork to my face. So, say he is becoming more baby as I become evidence of origami folded and refolded along a learning curve. Etiology, speculative. Exposure to solvents, benzene, petroleum products, hypertension, loss of axon, cerebral infarction. I would have been kinder had I known the day he dismantled my car that widespread white matter, lesions, and hemorrhage were subtly but inexorably leading to impaired executive functions and processing speed. I remember that November day in Pennsylvania, mixing in every kind of sky and prying the leaves off one by one with as many pincer grips as a gale can chopstick. Coolly, the bodies of experts, the professional committees, hone their vocab to tweezers. And I love it, too. I love how it controls my breathing, subcortical, ischemic, for we life forms are evolving only toward more feeling. Angie Malenko, thank you uh, for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me.